So, welcome to Plodcast, episode 76. Great to have you with us. Great to have you with us. So, I want to um, talk a little bit. I just saw in the news the other day that there's a, um, a, a British city. I actually forgot the name. It's a good-sized city, 300,000 people or so. Um, but there's a British city that just um, determined that, uh, that kids as young as eight years old need to be taught in sex ed courses, in their sex ed course, that uh, boys can have periods too. And they required that um, uh, hygienic materials for menstruation be included, uh, be, be uh, located in the boys' restrooms because boys can have periods too. And the money quote here was, uh, quote, menstruation must be inclusive, close quote. Menstruation must be inclusive. Now, there's something interesting going on because one of the standard um, uh, taunts thrown, against, th- thrown at anybody who is a conservative skeptic on any of the standard issues, it could be the gender issues like this, it could be climate change, it could be um, yeah, any, anything like that. The, the taunt that is thrown into our teeth is that we are anti-science. You conservatives are anti-science. Now, it strikes me that 100 years ago, 150 years ago, let's say if I were to challenge an Orthodox Darwinian or even if I, if I found an Orthodox Darwinian today who was kind of old school, if I uh, said, no, I don't believe in evolution, I believe in creation, I could see myself being accused plausibly, given their operating assumptions, of being anti-science. But that's, that's in the uh, fundamentalist um, phase of the scientific project. The accusation that we're anti-science based on climate change issues and based on um, um, things like, things like uh, menstruation must be inclusive. And I, I look at that and I think, wait, you think that we're anti-science? You're saying menstruation must be inclusive? And you think I'm anti-science? What, what is going on? Well, what's happened in the religion of science they had their fundamentalist period, and now they have entered into their postmodern liberal relativistic period. When Christianity, when liberals started doing their thing in, uh, in Christian circles, one of the things they did was they separated the sort of the, um, what do you call it, the, all the good words associated with um, Christianity. They detached those words like, love and mercy and jubilee and, you know, they, they ransacked Christianity for, for the good words, and they detached those words from the founding documents of the Christian faith, which would be scripture. So when, when someone wanted to define love, they didn't uh, turn to the Bible to uh, do a Bible study. When someone wanted to define mercy, they didn't go to the Bible. So the Bible... Um, the Bible became for a time something like the queen, the queen mum of Christianity, you know, 
someone who doesn't have any real political power, but who comes out on the balcony periodically to wave at everybody. Um, and then after a while, the Bible is just kept indoors. And what happens is everybody says whatever it is they want to say. So now we have uh, pastors, clergymen, ostensible clergymen, so-called clergymen, from mainline denominations blessing abortion clinics, for example, or conducting same-sex mirage uh, ceremonies and so on. Oh, this cannot happen. You, you cannot have someone who says, I'm a Christian minister, I'm a Christian clergyman, and I can bless this sodomite union, or I can bless this abortion for the abortion we're about to perform, we glorify, you know, we dedicate this to you, O oh God. That kind, of, that kind of horrific, appalling thing is only possible if you've had a profound divorce between the religion and the source of that religion's authority. So uh, if you've, you're still calling yourself a Christian, but you have detached yourself in, in a remarkable, profound, deep way from the source of any of your authority to say any of this stuff, Right? Well, the same thing has happened in the religion of science. In the religion of science, it used to be that reason, evidence, argumentation would formulate a particular um, uh, view, and that view was held to be the scientific consensus, not an absolute thing, but a provisional thing, because everything was subject to review. But if you denied it, if you said no, I don't believe I don't believe in Newton's three laws, or I don't, you know, I don't. If if you challenge something like that, you could be plausibly attacked by someone who held to that religion, and held to that religion's scripture. So you were a genuine dissenter. You were a genuine heretic. But when liberals say that I'm anti-science. Because I, because I say that menstruation is limited to females. How is it possible for them to get away with calling me anti-science? Well, it's because they've divorced, they've, been, they've, they've uh, been complicit in this radical divorce between their founding scriptures, reason, evidence, hypothesis, reason, evidence, objective conclusions that exclude any contraries. They, they've abandoned that. And what they've got is they've got the same. They are to science what modern liberals are to Christians. They like the sound of the words, but the words have no connection whatever to objective reality or any way of um, uh, being corrected by objective reality. So in our book review section of um, podcast, episode 76 today, I wanted to review a, a, a small little book by John Frame. This was a, a, um, a happy thing. Um, uh, Lexham Press, uh, L-E-X-H-A-M. Lexham Press is the publishing arm of Logos Bible Software. I've used, um, I've used Logos Bible Software for many years. I'm a big fan. I really enjoy it, really appreciate it. Um, I just uh, got the upgrade to uh, Logos 8 and have been just, I've just been thrilled with the upgrade. I've been thrilled with how the program works and so on. Well, 
um, these people at, at Logos are are into they're busy beavers. They're doing a lot of stuff, and one of the things they're doing is publishing um, books, publishing traditional books. And I was sent a review copy that I I I didn't know this book existed until I got got it in the mail, and um, and this is. I'm not quite sure of the title because of how the graphics are arranged, uh, arranged on the front, but it, it's something like Nature's Case for God or the Biblical Case for Nature's Case for God or the Biblical Argument for Nature's Case for God. Um, and what this is is John Frame tackling the issues um, involved with natural revelation, tackling the issues involved with natural Revelation, and what he does is he, uh, and this this is a, something that I think I've felt has been needed for a long time. He goes through Scripture and shows how Scripture talks about general revelation or natural revelation. Scripture, um, it, it is, we are not. If if someone said, "Oh, I'm just a strict biblicist. I only I only know what's true about the world through Scripture and not through." natural revelation. Well, the problem with that is what what do you do with those places in Scripture that talk about natural revelation? Romans 1, God's eternal character and divine majesty are clearly seen in Romans 1. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm, Psalm 19. There are multiple places where the Bible tells us that the world tells us something about God. And what John Frame does is he very carefully walks through how nature speaks to us according to Scripture. So basically, you've got natural revelation. It, it, it's not as though... Um, think of it this way. So it's, it's not as though God has given us one book in nature and then has given us another book in Scripture, and then we're debating on w- which book we ought to read. Um, there's an element of truth in that, that nature is one book and Scripture is another book. But there's a sense in which, and this is what John Frame's book here does, there's a sense in, a sense in which the, the special revelation of Scripture, at least a portion of it, is a user's guide for the other book. Or um, the Scripture provides an index for the other book. So you've got the book of general revelation, and then you have uh, an answer key or a teacher's edition of that book described, or at least in a portion of scripture where the teacher's edition has the answers in the back or says, this is what that means. And this is when the sun does this, this is what it means. When the stars do this, this is what it means. And when the heavens do this other thing, this is what it means. So um, what John Frame does is he, he um, I think this uh, book just simply destroys the um, the isolated and watertight biblicist position, the strict biblicist position. Nature's Case for God, John Frame, um, put out by Lexham Press. Oh, I should say one other thing, and this was something I, I don't want to fault John Frame for this, but it occurred to me when I was reading this reading this book, I realized that um, natural revelation. I realize that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is part of natural revelation. The resurrection of Jesus is described in Scripture, but it happened in nature. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead 
in nature, and it's talked about in the Word. So um, if natural revelation includes whatever happens in the world, well, factor that in. So, podcast 76, we have come to our hamartiology section. The word for manslayer, androphanos, is used once in the New Testament, manslayer. That place is 1 Timothy 1.9, and it's where the Apostle Paul is describing one of the uses of the law. In this sense, the law is not for a righteous man, but rather to restrain the lawless and disobedient. So this is one of the uses of the law. Among a list of other sins, such as whoring and homosexuality and kidnapping, we also find the rejection of manslaughter. Given that the law in this sense is given by God and is to be applied precisely to those who reject its authority, this is not a consensus or a social contract application of the law. So um, the law is given um, as a preparation for the gospel, uh, the law reveals to us our need for a Savior, so it's first law, then gospel. The law is given to us so that we as Christians, so that converted people, can know what love looks like. We see that in Romans 13, where, um, where Paul cites the Ten Commandments and says, whatever other commandment there may be uh, are all summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so that's um, the the law provides believers on um, a, a working pattern to to know what love looks like, and then last is, is this sense uh, where uh, Paul's describing how the law gets imposed on lawless men, and and it's imposed on these men by the the swords by the sword of the magistrate or the billy club of the magistrate. Uh, this this use of the law is a use of the law that knocks heads. So um, if someone wants to be a manslayer, you make him stop. You threaten him with bad things if he doesn't stop. Uh, and he goes along with you because of force. Uh, that's, um, that is a um, good, reasonable, right, scriptural use of the law. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.